So, you know what we've been talking about over the, these last few weeks. Um, this is our core convictions time on Sunday mornings. We want to deepen, deepen our convictions around the scriptures together and, uh, and on central themes that are very important for you to nail down um, in this season of your lives. And you know that we have been studying the theme of the gospel. And really, we've been asking the question, what is the gospel, right? What is the gospel? And do you remember why we started here? Again, this is just review. And remember how quickly we move through review? Depends on how quickly you answer the questions. What's that? Foundation of everything. Yep. How, what, how did Paul articulate that? The gospel is of what? First importance. And where is that found? 1 Corinthians 15, good. All right, we're getting faster. That's great. The gospel is of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's language. Why is it of first importance then? What does he mean by that? You said it a minute ago. You said the foundation for everything, but flesh that out. Central to understand God's sovereignty, okay. What are some other, other reasons? Luke, in the back. Bring salvation. Yes, yeah, the only message by which we can be saved. So, the, <laughs> it's huge, all right? Period. So, the gospel is central in that, in that most fundamental way. How else? Yep. So, another way of saying salvation is bringing us from death to life. It generates new life. Why else? It's essential to our growth. How so? Okay, yeah, it does give us purpose in life, for sure. It reconciles us to God. So all growth that happens in our lives happen now with His Spirit indwelling us, minds that can understand the truth, minds that can be renovated, and this hope that God has now been reconciled to us. We don't, we don't strive now to perform, to be righteous, so that He accepts us. We're already accepted in Christ, and now we strive to be holy out of love for Him. So it totally, it totally changes the way we pursue sanctification. Why else is it central? Yes, the power of God. So it's essential in, in how? In our evangelism, right? Yeah, it's power to save. So if we want to share the gospel and, and build our lives on the gospel and build our churches on the gospel, we have to know it. If we want to evangelize, we have to know it. So for, for Paul, it's of first importance. You can't get any, any, any more important than the gospel. Excellent. So as we're thinking about answering this question, what is it? What are some... Themes, I'll give you a hint, there are really four of them. Four themes that are kind of present that frame up our, our understanding of what we mean by the gospel, the good news of, of Christ. What are some of those themes? Do you remember? Okay, God. So, starts with God, and then flowing out of that, man, right? And then Christ, and then what's the fourth? Response, a call to respond to this, to this message about God. It has to do with man what Christ has done, and then to respond to that message. So last week, we started with God, um, because you have to start there when we're thinking about the gospel. And we called last week, uh, I don't know if I ever quite said this, but I'll give you a little, little taglines for each of these, God, colon, the good creator. Okay, So God, the good creator. 
So why do we have to start with God as he has revealed himself to us in Scripture? Why is that our starting point when we think about the gospel? That's right. So you have to you have to help human beings understand who the real God is. Why? Because we're all naturally darkened in our understanding, is what is what Paul says in Romans one. We've we've darkened, and so we we we've idolized things. We've idolized things in the creation. We worship those things. We make those things into God, and so we reform God, the transcendent triune God, into our own image. That's what human beings do. That's what we're going to talk about that next time about human beings and sin. All right. So we have all these twisted and default views of, of God because we are born in sin. And so we've got to know the good God who created us because He created us, right? We're not, we're not, we didn't evolve. Um, he, we're generated from Him and for a purpose. And that means then, what? We're accountable to Him. We're not just freewheeling it as human beings, even though we want to think that we are. We are fundamentally, as creatures, accountable to the one who created us. So we've got to know that, that we're accountable to this God. He's our creator, and we have to know that he's good. Right? So Genesis 1, remember we were there last, last week? Just his goodness on display in the created order. And he's perfectly good. He's perfectly good. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no flaw in the Lord. And the only downside of that is we've, per, we've personally offended this good God. Right? And do you remember what, that God is good, that that goodness flows out in two directions? Do you remember what those are? Okay, yeah, good summary. Justice and mercy. Why is God's goodness, why does it flow out in justice? We typically don't think about that. Why is it? Why is that the case? Oh, go ahead, yeah. No, you go for it. You haven't talked yet. Uh, he has to deal with sin. So he has to deal with people. Yes, he has to deal with sin. If... Someone does not deal with sin. If, if, a, if, a murder, if a murder happens and a judge doesn't deal with it, the judge is not good, right? The judge is unjust. It's a, an aspect of God's goodness is he must deal with the guilty. The only problem with that is we're all guilty, right? So it works when we're not the one on the, on the bench, but we are. Thankfully for us, though, his goodness flows out in another dimension. And what is that? Well, somebody said it earlier. Mercy, right? It overflows in mercy. We looked at Exodus 34 on that, where you saw God's, God's name. He says is, is, he, he's, he was going to proclaim his goodness, his name, before Moses. And we saw these two things, that he's, he's, abundant, he's abundant in his mercy, but he won't pardon the wicked. He won't clear the guilty. And we're going to see these two themes come together in the cross of Jesus, where sin is dealt with and mercy is offered justly. But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. So we're accountable to him as, as his creatures, as his humanity. And so if we're, get, if we're going to start, if we're going to understand the good news, we have to understand the God who, who made us and the significance of our offense against him. So what I just said implies that we need to know ourselves too, right? So we start with God. And that flows into our understanding of man, of humanity. So, just kind of, we've already kind of talked at it, but there's a couple things we need to know about ourselves. What would some of those things be? We're 
What's that? That we're bad. Yeah. That's key. But there's something that comes before that. Okay, we're created. In the image of God. So we need to know why we were made. Right? We have to know why we were made. Who we are is the image of God. And why He made us in the first place. And so one of those themes that we're going to look at is, is man in the image of God. Created in the image of God. What does that mean? Or we could say it as his, as his regal children. So we've got to know that, and I think that's where we have to start when we think about man. And that is, is, uh, is the great question of our day. So if, if different generations have had different theological battles to fight, this one is ours. What or who is man? Because there is rampant confusion on this issue. So we've got to know about that. And that in, in, in theology, that's called anthropology, right? Study of man. Anthropology, who we are, why we were made. How we'll flourish. So we've got to know that, but we also have to know, somebody said it, that we're bad. Okay, we have to know what went wrong with the, with the creation charter. What happened? What went badly wrong and what remains badly wrong today? And that's, we, all, we all know the word for that in Scripture is sin, transgression. It's the bad news before the good news, right? We've rebelled against our Creator King. We have sinful natures, like the core of who we are is corrupt. So we'll talk about that. It's pervasive, and we, we have to understand just how bad we are before the good news becomes as sweet as it is intended to be. But today, I started preparing this lesson, and I was thinking, man, we really got to do a two-parter, because I can't, I can't talk about both of these issues uh, in like 20 minutes. So we're at 9.43 right now. Any kind of time reference always reminds me to check the clock. All right, 9.43. So what I want to do is first look at um, the purpose of man this week. And then next week I want to look at the problem, you know, our, our, the rebellion of man. So what I want to call, the, the, so think about this as one discussion that's going to happen over two weeks. Okay? And what I'm calling this discussion now is man, colon, man, the rebellious image. Man, the rebellious image. Or you could, you could image, you could say, man, the rebellious son. Now, I understand there's men and women in this room, but sonship is a category that women can be part of as well. So, don't hear me thinking it's just for, just for the guys, okay? Man, the rebellious image, or man, the rebellious son. So let's, let's, let's start here with the purpose of man, okay? It's hard to conceive of a more dramatic and glorious purpose than the one God gave our first parents. We can call it like the human charter. Why we exist as a, as a humanity, as a people. But before we jump in, have you ever thought much about that question? Why do we exist as human beings? How would you answer that? Okay, to be in a relationship with God. Yes. Definitely a huge part of that. 
Okay, catechism, good. Yep, that's great. So what, what does it mean to glorify God? Yeah, it's good. And then you you added the tagline on there, and yeah, that's good. Have you ever thought much about the question? Why do we exist as a people, as a humanity? Yeah, yeah. Reflective people, yep. Mm-hmm. A very complex sandbox, yep. Keep going, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk about dominion in a bit and what that means. But yes, that is that's a good good observation. Hayden, you had your hand up back there. Yeah, that's good. Like where you're going with that? To partner with him to rule his creation. Yes. Yeah. So, those are good. You guys are you guys are hitting on it. All right. So. As we jump in here, just open up again to Genesis 1 and 2. And really, man, I keep thinking about just how many times we go here. Thinking about doing a series on just these opening three chapters of Genesis and then kind of implications out of it, but I'm just kind of putting these series in the hopper right now, so and I didn't promise that. We'll, we'll, maybe we'll see, but they're so significant for the rest of Scripture, and in particular, the, with the topic we're looking at this morning, why, why the Lord made us, and I think in these chapters, you can see at least three related purposes or related themes on why we exist. Why the Lord made us. And we're going to look at each one of these, and then we'll, we'll pull back at the, end of, at the end of the lesson and kind of bring it all together in a, in a synthesis. We've got to nail this. We have to understand why God made us, because that then accentuates the fall, and we, we're understanding, okay, wow, how far we fell, so to speak, from how, we, from how, God, how God originally intended us. And then it's going to help us understand our redemption, what God is restoring us back to. Does that make sense? So, the, one, the first, first way we could describe this here is, is representing God sonship. First, first purpose is that we represent God. And you could, if you want like one word on this, 
is sonship. We represent God, and the word on that would be sonship. In Genesis 1, mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation because we're made uniquely in the image of God. Look in Genesis 1. We'll start in verse 24. This is day 6. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that, that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So here we have the, the culmination of day six. All right, the culmination of day six. And if we were to read all of chapter one, you would notice that God breaks the pattern here at the end of day six. It begins to reflect within the Godhead, and he creates a being that's made specifically in his image. Human beings are unique from the rest of creation in this first chapter of Genesis. Like, dramatically different than we're, we're part of creation, yet we resemble God. It's like human beings are the grand finale of a fireworks show. So we often like to think about it. It's what came last, and it's the pinnacle of God's creation. So then we need to think through, and you need to answer this question, what does it actually mean to be made in God's image? How would you answer that? What does it mean to be made in God's image? Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, we reflect the character of God, I think is a, is a good way to put it. Um, I would say it's being created in God's image. Man, there's so much ink spilled on this, right, over the centuries. But I would say it's that we're fundamentally like God. We're patterned after Him to reflect what He is like to the world. We're fundamentally like God. We're not God. We're like Him. We're patterned after Him, be a good way to think about it, patterned after Him to reflect 
what he is like to the universe, to the cosmos. One writer put it this way, which I will quote a lot, is he said to face a human being is to face God in some sense. Because we're like him. Human beings are the most like God of any of God's creation. And we see here, verse 27, that it's a gendered image, right? Men and women together make up this image of God, which means that both reflect God's likeness in complementary ways. God intended this to be so, and that's why he created us as gendered beings, which makes gender very important. And since we are in God's image, human beings naturally reflect him. Okay? Even fallen ones. They naturally reflect God. As, as the same writer, Owen Strachan, which a little plug for his book, Reenchanting Humanity, A Theology of Mankind, Owen Strachan. And uh, it is excellent. And it's a practical theology. So he shows you how anthropology intersects all these areas that we're currently thinking through in our culture. Work, vocation, uh, same thing. Um, Race, ethnicity, same thing. Um, Sexuality. All of those, all of the issues that we're facing today that that is just what we might call the hot button issues here, he deals with in this book. Super helpful. So, he, this writer, calls us God-stamped creatures. I think that's helpful when you think about the image. We're, God, we're stamped by God after God. And our only experience now is after the fall, right? So when this image has been corrupted, twisted, maligned, we're going to talk about that. But even though we're badly marred, all right, we still reflect his image. We, we, we're, we reflect him nonetheless. We can't remove the stamp. We can't erase the image. Now, I'm going to read you a long quote from this book, but it's worth it, okay? Because he says it so well. He says, The image of God cannot help but image God. The image of God, us, we cannot help but image God. We relentlessly create and reproduce and subdue the earth albeit in profoundly broken ways. We give ourselves over to love and to care for others. We quest for the great answers of our world, despite the fact that 21st century conventional wisdom has already told us there are no great answers to be found. There is only a purposeless, designless cosmos. Although many mouth secularist, cosmological, and personal formulations, in their hearts they cheat. They treasure the wonder and the mystery of this place. And they act as if life is purposeful and meaningful. They do so because we are the image of God. And no one can erase this truth. We are stamped by God. And no one can scratch out the seal of God's making. Genesis 1 tells us why we are made, who made us, and what marks us out among all the living creatures. Very helpful. The image of God images God by default, even broken ones, even atheists. They try to scratch it out, but it's impossible. You cannot scratch out the fact that God has stamped you in his image. 
And if we wanted to use different terminology here about reflecting God, imaging God, we could say that, that, that being in God's image means then, a different metaphor, God is the father of humanity. Okay? God is the father of humanity. And humans are his children, his sons, again, thinking of pre-fall, his sons created in his likeness a glorious resemblance of the Almighty. So like father, like son idea. Look over in Genesis 5 real quick. You'll see these two ideas connected. Of image and sonship. Moses says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Do you hear that? Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days, after he fathered, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he's going to go on. But the point here is to note that God is being pictured as a father who is sort of begetting Adam in his image, and then Adam does the same thing with his son. So if you want to write down um, Luke 3, you see this same idea come up again of this sort of genealogy that Luke likes to trace from Jesus back, all the way back to Adam, back to God as God's son. I'll just read that for you real quick, not the whole thing. But Luke 3.23 says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. And then he starts saying, the son of Heli, and he's going to go on. Lots of names, all the way down to verse 38. So he's backing up the genealogy, which he says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Christ is in, in, this, in this genealogical line. Sons of God. So being, it's another word for being made, or an idea of being made in the image of God. So, so the idea of sonship in Scripture is also connected to another important purpose for human beings. Okay, so that's the first one. We reflect God and made in His image as sons. We also reign for God. We reign for God. And the image here is kingship. We reign. Humanity is designed, created to reign on behalf of God in kingship. Where do you get this? Well, from this word for dominion in verse 26, and it happens again and again. Let us make man in our image, Genesis 1, back in Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Dominion. So as God's image, we are given delegated regal authority. That's what this dominion means. It's a kingship term. If you were an Israelite, you would have heard this read. You would have instantly thought of the kingship. Humanity was given regal authority over all creation. So we were to have dominion and subdue the earth. 
Then he goes on down and says, you know, let them have dominion again in verse 28. So we see that dominion is one of the central ideas of this passage. And notice that it's not limited to like one area of the world or one nation or one this or that. Notice that the dominion is, is worldwide in scope. He says it in, back in verse 26. Dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth. Over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So this is another huge theme in the Bible. This theme of dominion. So if you want to underline it, star it, look for it as it pops up again and again and again in Scripture, and that's going to help us flesh out what dominion actually looks like. Never quite heard it in terms of the sandbox idea, as earlier, but the idea is, is that we're to cultivate the earth, to cultivate civilization unto the glory of God. We're to bring all of the earth in subjection to God as his sons, to obey God. We're in a covenant with him to bring all of the earth into subjection and rule it on God's behalf in righteousness and justice, developing its resources for the good of the, for the, good of the creation. That's like a mini-series in itself, this idea of dominion in the Bible. You're going to see this dominion once, once Adam and Eve fail this dominion idea is going to be picked up again in Abraham, in Israel, the covenant family, through Israel to the, to the king, who's, who the kingship, David, and then the new David who's going to come in Christ. So he is given ultimate dominion, Christ, and then all who follow him, all who are his people, are recreated into this new humanity, and then he meets out this dominion again for us in the new creation. So you're going to see this thing... Go all the way through the Bible, this idea of dominion, and it informs our understanding of of redemption. But again, just going to touch on that. In verse 28, it becomes obvious that the way humans are to take dominion is to increase. Right? We're to be fruitful and multiply. So what's he saying? Then make more humans. Have more children who are also, this is the key, also in the image of God, who reflect God perfectly, who live in perfect communion with God, who trust Him, who worship Him implicitly, etc., etc. You get the idea. As God's image bearers increase, then, so does the extent of His dominion in and through human beings on the earth. There are more and more people to cultivate the earth and to build civilization unto the honor and glory of its creator. You can immediately see where this is going to be a problem, right? When human beings rebel against this, and they start using their purposes, for, or they're using their created identity for other purposes, other than the cultivation of the earth unto God's glory. You're going to see in chapter 6, the earth's going to be filled with violence. A complete 180 of what the Creator intended. But here, we see this dominion for all of humanity, which includes having children, being fruitful and multiplying, so that God's image spreads over all the earth. 
And notice, again in verse 28, that God's blessing is upon humanity. He's going to bless them to fulfill the task of multiplication and dominion. It means that from the outset, key, God is committed to the creation charter. He's committed to it. And blessing is what it's going to take to make it happen. It means even if it's bent, even if it's rebelled against, God's not going to abandon the project. He's committed to empowering human beings, his sons, to fulfill their purpose, to fulfill his mission. So, that would be another, another idea here, that we reign, purpose of humanity, we, we reign for God. Kingship. Human beings are regal. Even if you're not of nobility or of noble birth, you're created by God to reign for God. On his behalf. A third purpose is what we might call that we are created to reside with God. Reside with God or dwell with God. And if you want another another image on this would be priesthood. Priesthood. And this gets at the idea of of both service and relationship. We serve him, and we relate to him. We have companionship with with God. We we partner with him in service. And you're going to see this not necessarily in chapter 1, although I think think it's there and it's in the the flavor here, but you're going to see it come out in chapter 2, a a slightly different but parallel account of, of creation. So, where am I getting this? Residing with God, dwelling with God. Well, I think it's sort of, it's, it's latent within this story. It's important to know that this Garden of Eden, the garden is, is a central metaphor for God's presence. It's a real garden. I'm not saying it's a met- metaphorical in that sense. It's a real garden. But gardens in the ancient Near East and, and temples were, were very closely related. It's where the gods lived, in the beginning especially. And here, it's not just the gods. It's not the gods. It's God himself. This is God's dwelling in this garden. And he's put his human beings there to cultivate this garden, to serve it. So if you were Israel, you would understand that Moses wrote this, and he wrote it for a purpose. The original readers of the Pentateuch, these first five books, were Israelites headed into the Promised Land. And that means they were already familiar with the law. They were already familiar with the tabernacle. They were already familiar with a number of these things. Why is that significant? Well, both the tabernacle and the temple, God's residences, were patterned after this garden. Its design. The very design of of, of the tabernacle and temple reminded the Israelites of God's holy garden residence in the beginning. So, the precious stones here found in, in, in Genesis 2, um, in verse 11. There's gold, bedellum, onyx, stone are there. All of those stones are, are in the temple complex. Later, the priests 
were commanded to do the same thing that Adam is commanded to do here. They were commanded to work and to keep the tabernacle, just like Adam is commanded to work and to keep the garden. The exact same verbs are used together of the priests. The cherubim, which were placed at the garden gate at the, at the Genesis 4 to guard the humans from coming back into the garden after they had sinned, they were also cherubim woven into the veil of the Holy of Holies to guard human beings from coming into the presence of the Holy One in both the tabernacle and the temple. And there's lots of connections like this. So the point is to understand the garden is God's dwelling place. You'll see in chapter 3 at the fall that God came back to the people. and He was walking in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. This walking language is this language of communion. So he's coming back to them now. They've sinned and they're hiding from him. So relationship has been broken. So this story is all about, this garden narrative is all about the relationship God has with his creatures and how they serve him in that covenantal relationship and how they're to commune with him. So, what was Adam and Eve to do? This command in Genesis 3, 15, 16 here. Nope. Where are we at? Yes, 15. Genesis 3.15. This command for human beings to work and to keep the garden. 2.15. I don't know if I said 3.15. 2.15. What does this command mean? Work and keep the garden. Well, cultivate the garden, right? Develop it. Extend its borders. This is the dwelling of God. So he's given the human beings a cultivated garden... And he says, tend it, work it, keep it. Meaning, not just grow food, even though that's important, but I think the implication here is that it's there to multiply, right, from, from chapter 1, and they're there to grow. Extend the borders of the garden. Extend God's residence over all of creation. Cultivate the creation. So another way of saying, take dominion. Back in chapter 1. They were to keep the garden. They were to have charge of it. This would include knowing what the deadly tree is, Right? And communicating that to future image bearers. Knowing the commands of God, making sure those commands are understood and obeyed by faith. Interestingly, this, this again, the work and keep is going to become the language of the priesthood. Very, very similar here. And, and again, I've already pointed this out, but we can't, we can't miss the fact that, that as these sort of proto-priests Human beings were to commune with God. They were to walk with Him. This, that's the language used in Genesis 3. They were to relate with the Creator face-to-face, unbroken fellowship, the fullness of joy. I think somebody said that earlier about we're created to be in relationship with God. Yes and amen. So, let's bring all this together we'll, and we'll end here. Let's summarize this purpose, okay? At creation... God intended His faithful image bearers to increase and to mediate His blessed reign and His presence over all creation. So God intended His faithful image bearers to increase and then mediate His blessed reign and His presence over all creation. That was the task, the charter given to human beings. We're placed right in the middle 
of his purpose for the world. In fact, we could say it hinges on the faithfulness. This is going to sound crazy, but this is true. It hinges on the faithfulness of human beings. Or maybe we could say it of a human being. You see where this is going. God himself took up the task, didn't he? And he took it up as man, one of us. God intended his glory to fill the earth through the increase of his image bearers who trust him, worship him, commune with him, serve him, reign for him, and enjoy him forever. Now you can see why this is so important to nail down. When we think about the gospel. Not only were we created by God, we were, but we have to know why. We were created for a purpose, for this glorious purpose. And it also helps us to understand the heights from which we have fallen as humans. And next week we're going to look at the depths and this black of where we're at. But it's also going to help us recognize why we need another son, a perfect son, to come and to take our place to represent humanity where humanity has failed. To fulfill that which we've never been able to fulfill. And it's going to help us understand what he is recreating us to become. Starting now in our conversion and transcending through the grave in resurrection in the new creation. It doesn't end when we die. It sort of advances when we die and we're resurrected from the dead to take dominion as he intended. So next week, we're going to look at the rebellion of man. Again, I'm not expecting you to, to go through all these kinds of purposes of man in your evangelism. If you have time, that's great. But I, I'm wanting to lay a foundation for you, convictional foundation for you, so that as you begin to interact, you think about the gospel for yourself, you understand yourself rightly, and how these things, I'm, I'm sure I raised more questions, maybe some of this was new for you, that's great. So that means we, there's lots of things for us to talk about. Okay? Um, let me just wrap it up here. We're already out of time. And uh, just thank the Lord. Father, we are... We didn't even talk about how you have, in Christ, recreated us and, and are now essentially resurrecting this task for us to, to take dominion as we evangelize and plant churches, as we reflect you in our spheres of influence in our work and our homes all as we look forward to the day of, of the resurrection we pray that you would give us clarity in these things so that as we live our lives um, we would be lights to a people in darkness who have no idea why they're made may we bring that news to them help them have clarity be willing to face persecution imprisonment and death to get this across to the, the image bearers that have turned away from you to help some of them understand and be reconciled to you. We pray it in Christ's name.